I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Headstrong. My name is Louis Strong and I host this show. Now, if you are listening for the first time, Headstrong is a podcast where I sit down with a variety of people in the public eye to talk to them about their lives and their careers, but notably their vulnerabilities to inspire the listener to understand what it means to be headstrong. This series I am exclusively covering the sport of cricket. I have spoken to a number of past and present cricketers to talk to them about their own experiences. This series is sponsored by McGill and Partners and Ascot Group, who have shown some tremendous support. Part of this kind support has come in the form of donations to the Ruth Strauss Foundation, who Headstrong are supporting for this series. I am immensely proud to be supporting the Ruth Strauss Foundation with this series of Headstrong in Innings With. I have been joined by Deepa and Karina on this episode and we sat down to have a chat about the Ruth Strauss Foundation. We talk about how the charity was formed, the specifics and the details of what the charity stands for and the amazing work that they do. So without further ado, Here is the episode with the Ruth Strauss Foundation, which I really hope you find engaging and informative. And if you would like to donate £10 to the Ruth Strauss Foundation, please text 70191, writing RSF10. Deepa and Karina, thank you for joining me on Headstrong for this episode about the Ruth Strauss Foundation. How are you both? Wonderful, thanks, Louis. Really good. Great to be here. Thanks for Brilliant. having us. Oh my gosh, my absolute pleasure. And I'm really looking forward to this episode because I think for many cricket fans, many people know about the charity, but I don't think that they know the ins and outs of what it means. They've seen what the Red for Ruth days and what 
the power it can have, but they don't know enough about it. And I think that that's what I want to capture in this episode. So I think probably first off to you, Karina, I just would like to know a little bit more about the Ruth Strauss Foundation and specifically why it was set up. Yes, okay. So, um, well, as you all know, that the, the Ruth Strauss Foundation is set up by Andrew um, uh, in memory of his late wife, Ruth. Um, Ruth died in 2018 of um, a form of lung cancer that affects non-smokers. Ruth um, never smoked a cigarette in her life. She was a very fit and healthy human being, sickeningly so, actually. She was into yoga and she was... <laughs> so she was she was vibrant and it was a complete shock um, that she was, you know, diagnosed with a, a form of lung cancer that affects those people that don't smoke. Um, and... Uh, just before she died, she knew she she didn't have long left to live. Um, Ruth and Andrew had a conversation about how something positive could come out of this awful, awful situation. And that was the kind of person that Ruth was, really. She was very selfless. You know, she she always she was the kind of person who, you know, always remembered your birthday or actually always remembered the kids' birthdays. I, I don't know how she did it, but she did. So it doesn't surprise me at all that in the last few moments of her life, she, she sat down with Andrew and wrote down on a piece of paper what the foundation in her name could be all about and and how it could um how some positive could be um could come from it um so that's why we're here that's why the foundation exists um it was Ruth's idea and she wrote it down and and she felt very strongly on on two things um that um families in the same situation that her family was in where a, where a parent of young children under 18 has been given this awful diagnosis that one of the parents hasn't got long to live that the family should be supported through that they should be given advice on how they they can talk to their children about their diagnosis how they can have open and honest conversations with the children and she didn't feel like that was readily available and they found it luckily in the end through jenny thomas who we, who we work with but it wasn't something that was offered it wasn't easy to find it wasn't easily accessible so she felt really strongly that that needed to change and and the second part of our mission is around non-smoking lung cancer um and and just uh, her her frustrations i suppose that nobody could really give any answers on why she why she was diagnosed with this 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 awful disease and that there didn't seem to be enough information out there on a why people contract non-smoking lung cancer but also how to treat them treat them effectively and, and how we could pretend prevent them in the future so 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 those so essentially that's what the foundation is here to do is you know support honor her vision and her wishes along those on those two two sides of our mission it's really incredible i absolutely love the mission obviously that's why i'm supporting the Ruth Strauss Foundation is wonderful and she sounds, uh, you know, she honestly sounds like the most wonderfully selfless woman and I love that it's come from her, you know, deep down and that's still still rooted in, in what the foundation stands for. But how, how common is lung cancer and, and specifically those that don't smoke? I mean, how, how, how common is that? Uh, and very sadly for Ruth, how, how common is that to happen nowadays? Really, really good question. So, um, firstly, let's look at lung cancers. There are about 39,300 new cases of lung cancer in England each year. And actually, lung cancers are the biggest cause of cancer death in England. And now, 
going on to non-smoking lung cancers. So firstly, non-smoking lung cancers are, are occurring people who've smoked less than 100 cigarettes in their lifetime. So that's the definition. If you're categorised as a non-smoking related lung cancer, that's what you've done is had less than 100 cigarettes. And out of those 39,300 cases, about 15% of those are related to non-smoking lung cancer. So it's more than many might think, actually. And if it was taken as a separate category, so if they broke down lung cancer as one category and then did non-smoking lung cancer as another, it'd be the eighth most common cause of cancer-related death in the UK. And that's about 6,000 deaths every year. Wow. So it's huge. It's, it's huge. And what, what, what can we do in that capacity then to do more for that? I mean, it's... I mean, it's such a, it's such a, I mean, it's probably the billion dollar question, obviously, but in what sense, in what way can we help in that regard from that side of the, the foundation? So actually, one of the things we're doing is um, trying to raise awareness of non-smoking lung cancers. So we've actually been involved with Public Health England a bit earlier this year on a campaign to raise awareness to the general public. So all of us know what the potential signs of non-smoking lung cancer are. And then the other thing we're doing right now, actually, at the moment, is we've partnered with two other patient-led cancer charities called ALK Positive UK. So that's A-L-K Positive UK and E-G-F-R Positive UK. The work we're doing both those charities is to run a GP awareness campaign. So it's all well and good that you and me and the rest of us know what the symptoms could be. But you land at the doorstep of your GP, they also need to know what the potential signs and symptoms are. And the, what the campaign does is it, in, it highlights um, nine people who are living with a non-smoking lung cancer at the moment. And the photographs for the campaign have been taken by Rankin, who's a really renowned photographer, as many people will know. Um, and each of those individuals who are aged 28 to 65 had quite a delay in being diagnosed. It took months, actually. So that's why this campaign is really important. It's a great question about what can we all do and mm. what primary care practitioners can do is if someone is in front of them, whether it's virtually or in person, they recognise that even though this person might not fit the typical symptoms for a lung cancer patient, they may have a non-smoking lung cancer because actually more younger women and people who have never smoked are getting lung cancer. So despite the number incidence of smoking is going down in the UK and globally, the incidence of non-smoking lung cancer are going up. So we need to make sure that we diagnose people earlier because that gives them the best options for treatment and curative treatment. No, absolutely. Now, on, on the other side of the foundation then as well, there we were talking about the pre-bereavement as well. What is the definition of pre-bereavement? Because, of course, we know the, the word bereavement and it's often one of those subjects that is actually talked about far less in this society. But why is it so important to talk about pre-bereavement and what it actually means and stands for? It is a good question because actually, as you know, you know, that um, people talk quite widely around bereavement support and, and there are, you know, a, a number of charities and, and um, uh, support groups out there who support people when they've lost lost a parent or lost a loved one. And what we're talking about here is pre-bereavement. So it's the period of time when um, someone has been diagnosed with an incurable or terminal illness and up until that person's death. So what, what we feel really strongly about is that, you know, especially when there's young children involved, 
that you that the family should be supported to have those open conversations with their children because you know what the research tells us is children fathom it out you know they know that something's going on and actually what we do know is that generally speaking especially if you've got really young kids um you know your instinct is to put, put a protective ring around the children to sort of not tell them the full story things are happening in the background but they pick up on these little signals and actually you know ruth Ruth really wanted to have those conversations, but they but she needed help with that. So Andrew and Ruth needed to needed some guidance on actually how do I phrase those questions? What what to what extent do I give all the truth? You know, I, I don't really know how to approach this. And so what we're what we're insistent on is that uh, actually what we are very much our hope for the future is that every family that is facing the death of a parent is offered not just has access to but is offered the support they need um, to prepare the family for the future um, so that is having those conversations those quite difficult conversations but ultimately what we do know is that if a child is prepared for the death of a parent they will they will manage the after effect of that much more they, they will be able to cope with the event better if they've been prepared and they've had they've been part of those conversations but also you know giving the sort of permission to you know make memories and and make the most of those last few moments um together um so that's pre-bereavement support and and you know and, and actually we're on a bit of a culture change piece with this because actually it's not something that's widely talked about but as as we say we we, we feel really strongly that it, it is as important if not even more important than bereavement support and if you get the pre-bereavement bit right there might be less need for bereavement support because actually if you've had these conversations before then then you might need less support afterwards um in particular in particular when kids are involved it's so important. It's it's such an important part of the process, which actually should be part of the norm. And I can so see what the foundation and what Ruth wanted is because you want to be able to talk about that and have that conversation and you don't want the difficulties that surround it. Mm. And so the the mission that you're going through of making it just accessible for everyone, not just it just not not a choice, but it just allowed. It's something that should just be allowed and mm. Yeah, it's so important. What? How many children are bereaved then of of a parent in the UK? Well, I have to say, when when we started looking at this, because obviously we knew what Ruth felt very strongly and about, and, and and Andrew carrying her legacy for. But actually, when we start when we started, we didn't really know what the situation was. You know, how many families are faced with this awful situation every year? And it, and and you know, it's it, it's actually quite staggering. There are over twenty three thousand families with children under the age of eighteen every single year that have to have this conversation or would you know are, are diagnosed with incurable illness that have young children so you know there's a significant unmet need out there for these families to not knowing where to turn to to have these conversations with their children and that equates to around about forty-one thousand children every year who lose a parent which you know it's staggering it really is it really is and um, it just shows the essential work that is needed and actually it's it's one of those things because pre, because bereavement and indeed pre-bereavement uh, uh, have been not talked about for so long it's surprising mm. to see that it's taken this long for a conversation to occur mm. and indeed a, a foundation to exist where it makes it so accessible for everybody 
Mm. And I think, you know, and uh, Ruth called it doing death well. Uh, and, she, you know, on her piece of paper, she also talked about the taboo around death and dying. And actually, that's, that's you know, a big part of what we're about is, yes, we want to support families in, in, in their time of need. Um, but actually, it's even wider than that. You know, what we're saying is that we want to encourage, you know, people and especially with with children to have more open conversations more generally about death and dying mm. um, to sort of try and burst some of those taboos of having these conversations is the sort of stiff upper lip brit thing you know try and break down some of those barriers um um which we think will which will you know and, and as long as people understand you know how to talk to their children and have that guidance then we we know that it would make the difference for the family for the future because this is a story of hope and you know and, and and the children do go on and and they and just to be able to ruth in particular i know that she just wanted to know that her kids were going to be all right because they'd had those conversations definitely i mean now if we can look specifically at children then why is it so important for ch to prepare children for the death of a parent like what are the benefits of this you know conversation and this indeed this kind of part of their lives where they are being prepared for it that's such an important question one of the reasons it's really important as Karina said is if a parent is diagnosed with a terminal condition the child is likely to have a sense that something is going on so maybe if we think about all the treatment for different conditions parents might physically look different their energy levels might be different they might not be going to work as routine going to hospital appointments all sorts of things the children are picking up that actually their life and their day-to-day -day life has changed and we can all imagine putting ourselves in the child's shoes that if something is happening, our daily routine has changed around us, we can sense something is going on, but nobody's told us. So that level of confusion, particularly for you know, a younger child, will be huge. So that's one of the reasons it's important. But also, as Karina talked about earlier, how how do we make the most of that time that's left you know that time it, and it may be it may be months it could be 18 months even but that gift that time that's remaining is so important for children and families and those that remain so it's not just for the dying parent but those that remain after that death it, it, it gives them the opportunity to have a lifetime of memories and and happy memories actually and there's lots of research to show that if it's not done well, what are the long-term impacts? So it's not just tomorrow or the day after, it could be years to come. There's some research that shows children can be left with unresolved grief for up to nine years after a parental death. Um, I came across some really, really, you know, quite sad research that showed if you lost a parent before the age of 16, you're more likely to be unemployed at the age of 30. So that's decades on. And then you look at, you know, outcomes in education schools there's research done in britain that shows you do worse in gcse's for example and there's research in europe as well around that so the ripple effect is huge and we can just imagine that for children at all different ages what what is going on for them so you know if you're a teenager maybe you don't want your friends to know you don't want your school to know what's going on for you at home but you need a support structure so that's why it's really important so if parents are having this conversation with children and teenagers, then actually those that are around them, part of their support network, are all, if they are informed by the parent, it's the parent's choice, you know, it's their choice whether they decide to tell their children how they decide to have that conversation. Then that support network is also there for that whole family, not just for the child, not just for the parent. 
So how do you support families to have these conversations then? Because as you say, the timeline could be it would y- years after as well. And say you're only given a couple of months to prepare. What, what do you do to support that? Yeah, no, thank you for asking that. Um, so we're actually setting up our family support service for this summer. What that means is that we'll provide parents with advice and guidance on how to communicate to their children about their terminal diagnosis. And as I said earlier, each family is different. Their circumstances are different. So we want to ensure that every conversation we have with the parent is tailored. It's based on their needs. And we'll give them the space to have that conversation with our staff and it might be things like they might ask questions and the questions we do get asked is when's the right time to tell my child um how should I tell them what words should I use um what would be the reaction I could expect um and we will give them the space to have that conversation because the parent knows their child and knows them well and may even be able to anticipate what the reaction might be. So we want to be there to support them along that journey. And also we want to make sure that if they've got questions after they've had that conversation, they can come back and speak to the same person. Because the worst thing is, is having to repeat everything you've told one person and then to have to say it to another. So we want to provide that continuity for the family. And we also want to, um, just another point that I wanted to make is we also want to make sure that when we think about circumstance, let's think about the fact it's the condition, if there are two parents, what is the setup, are there siblings, um, what do they already know about the illness? So, you know, the terminal diagnosis hasn't just come, you know, so maybe they've seen the parent get progressively unwell and they've seen them have treatment, maybe we're doing quite well for a while and then have gotten more unwell. So all of those things have to be taken into consideration because some parents may not have told their child that actually I've been diagnosed with this condition, whereas others might have, maybe the child's even visited them and come with them to appointments. So we've really got to consider all of that. But the main thing is, you know, we really respect the fact that the parent knows the child. So we're there to support the parent if they decide to tell their children about their diagnosis. I think something that I I take away from what the Ruth Strauss Foundation stands for is it makes those impossible conversations bearable and manageable and allowed to happen in a safe space to generate a healthy conversation around something that should be talked about. And I think that's what... (laughs) Phew. No, no, no. I, I, I truly mean that. And I'm so so pleased to be supporting something so wonderful and I know that it's such a small part in everything that you do in comparison to some of the big stages that the charity can be seen but to open conversation to new people and open new doors to other people and and let this conversation be allowed to happen is so important and I'm all all for it and I literally couldn't agree more with anything that the, uh, the foundation does with everything that you do so thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. We really captured the essence of, of what the Ruth Strauss Foundation stands for. We can still donate to you. It's always open, not just during my podcast uh, series. The, the charity is always uh, in need of donations, as all charities are, but specifically um, my, my efforts for the Ruth Strauss Foundation are, if not more now, having spoken to you both. Thank you, Lewin. And thank you so much for the opportunity and all your support. No, my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for helping us get the word out there because it's, you know, it's great to have the donations and it's also great to raise awareness. This has been a brilliant opportunity for us. Really appreciate it. That's really kind. Thank you so much. Well, long may it continue. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. Mm
Thank you very, very much to Deepa and Karina for joining me on this episode of Headstrong. What an incredibly powerful episode. I'm extremely lucky to have gotten to speak to Karina and Deepa, who are immensely busy and their schedules are far too busy to be spent doing podcasts with me. However, they did give up their time and I cannot thank them enough. If you would like to donate to the Ruth Strauss Foundation, please text 70191, writing RSF10. Or in the bio below this podcast episode, you will see the Just Giving page where you can donate any sum of money. And every single amount is hugely appreciated. I will join you on Monday for another episode of Headstrong. 